uh, back in 1968, some of us are old enough to remember, uh, these words were spoken at the funeral for Martin Luther King. If any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him. And yet, said the speaker, this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancour in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of this world, preaching non-violence and the redemptive power of love. Uh, King, if you know anything of his story, uh, so maligned and yet so deeply committed to the cause of Christ and to the love of Jesus and reconciliation. And I wonder, what do do we do when people wrong us? When people falsely accuse you of something? When people spread rumours about you that just are not true? When people disregard your rights, uh, do you retaliate? Do you just hate them? Isolate them, ignore them? Do you bear a grudge forever? Friends, how do we act as followers of Jesus? Um, As we come to God's word, let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Father, thank you for a new day. Thank you for the wonders of your creation. But above all, we thank you for our redemption in Jesus. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. And we pray that you would help us to hear your word. Please help me to preach it faithfully and clearly. And please may your spirit help us all to hear and to believe and to live by your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at uh, revenge. And I want to think about it under the law, the Pharisees uh, and Jesus. But thinking about the context, we're in Matthew 5. You've heard a few sermons on it if you've been here. But again, remember the context. It's always important, isn't it, to put the Bible passage in context. Uh, Chapter 4, Jesus starts his public ministry. And he travels around and he calls on people, doesn't he? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And it sets the scene for us now in chapter 5. It's all about the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, addressed to the disciples, chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus is teaching them what it means to be in the kingdom. But there's huge crowds as well listening on. Jesus is mindful of that, and so he commends the kingdom to them as well. So today... We're one of those two groups of people as well. We're either in the kingdom or we're listening to find out more. And Jesus' words are radical, aren't they? Even the little snippet that we heard this morning, it it cuts across the religious uh, authority of the day and it cuts across the wisdom of our world as well, doesn't it? So what does life in the kingdom of God look like? Chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
pretty outrageous. The Pharisees were, were the religious ones who sought to look good on the outside, but their hearts were hard. Kingdom righteousness is about our hearts. And Jesus then goes on, doesn't he, to pick out six areas of life to show what true righteousness, what heart religion looks like. Uh, You've seen four of them already, murder, adultery, divorce and oaths. Next week, Matt's coming to talk about loving your enemies and today, revenge, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And each time under each of these areas, Jesus challenges our hearts, as he will do today. Uh, And so three areas for us to think about as we come to verse 38. What does the law say? What did the Pharisees say? And what does Jesus say? What does God's law say uh, about revenge? Uh, And Jesus goes back to the Pentateuch, you know, those first five books of the Bible, And there's three passages in them. We don't know which one Jesus specifically was referring to, but they're they're pretty similar, as you can see there on the screen. Let me read them to you. Exodus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy all say similar words. Exodus 21, if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. Foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Uh, Or Leviticus, as we read. If anyone injures his neighbour, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. Uh, And Deuteronomy 19, which was particularly in the context of false witnesses, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Pretty strict, isn't it? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. Why did God actually bring about these things? Why did he make those laws? I think two reasons. One is so that justice can be done. That evil and sin have to be punished. And we want justice to be done. But the punishment needs to be equitable, doesn't it? And restrained and fitting. And we we all hear, don't we, of those, you know, the bikey feuds or the underworld vendettas, the poor little girl who was shot yesterday in Sydney, you know, nine years old, probably retaliation shootings, uh, civil wars that last for generations. Our world's motto seems to be, doesn't it? Don't get mad, get even. If you've hurt me, I'm going to do worse. But you say, well, when does it stop? Who says enough? When is justice finished? God sets the limit. Justice is good. God is just. But God knows our hard hearts. He knows that evil lurking beneath, doesn't he? He knows that we long to hurt and harm others. And so he draws a line and he says, that's enough. That's fair. That's just. Uh, And God's law was to be enforced by a magistrate, 
So someone independent, external, objective, who set a limit on the compensation, who was independent so that revenge was restrained, and to stop people taking the law into their own hands. But God was keen to say, eye for eye is not the way, is not the basis for our personal relationships. Leave it up to somebody else. Leave it up to the judge. And so you get on with loving and serving others. God's law is good. God's law is always good, isn't it? It reflects God's character of righteous and just. So we've got God's good law and then the Pharisees came along as well. So God's people wanted to live God's law. They tried hard and the Pharisees certainly were in that camp. They were the super religious people of the day. If you've read anything of the Bible, of the Gospels, you'll have heard of them. And they wanted to look good. They wanted to look like they were obeying God's law. But they had a problem. I'm going to call it the Diet Coke problem. You know Diet Coke? Uh, there's a can. If you've never seen it, I'm sure you have. And, and see, some people think that drinking Coke is cool. Maybe you're one of them. But you can't stand it. But you want to look cool, okay? So you take the diet option. You minimise what's in it so that you can drink it. I want to look cool. I don't really like Coke, but I'll drink the diet stuff because that's all I can cope with. The Pharisees had a similar problem. They didn't really want to obey God's law from the heart, but they wanted to look like it. And so they changed the law. They added laws. They minimised the law. They did all sorts of things so that they could be seen to be keeping it, but they missed the heart of it. We don't need magistrates. I can sort it out myself. It's a personal thing, isn't it? We don't need to involve somebody else. And I have the right to retaliate, so I should. Revenge became a necessity. God's good law, which was designed to be restrictive, became prescriptive. You must do this. And no room for mercy or forgiveness. That, that hardness of heart rules. It's like the frost outside, you know, covering a heart and making it cold. And for centuries, this is what God's people were taught until Jesus came and really turned it all upside down, didn't he? Oh, we've lost it, Vernon. Ah, oh, wonderful. Thank you, Vernon. It's great to have people who understand technology, isn't it? <laughs> Verse 38, you have heard, says Jesus, that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you. All through the Gospels, isn't it, when Jesus speaks, people recognise a different type of authority. A real authority, that this man really knows God's word. And he doesn't change it, he doesn't reinterpret it, 
And in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he says he points to its fulfilment to show us what the law pointed to. Yes, justice is important. Yes, equity is important. Yes, we need to restrain the evil of our hearts, but not by retaliating. Jesus says there is a better law in the kingdom, a different way of relating to one another. Rather than standing on my rights, it is the law of love, isn't it? And in this matter, the principle, verse 39 is do not resist an evil person. Now, that's radical, isn't it? What does it look like? Well, Jesus gives four examples of it uh, in the rest of our passage. What does it look like when I'm publicly insulted? If someone strikes you on the right cheek, uh, it's a Jewish form of personal insult to strike someone on the cheek, we'll turn to him the other one also. It's a call not to resist, not to retaliate. Don't keep the cycle going. But to love the other person. It's hard, isn't it? What about loss of property? If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If I gave you my cloak, I'd be really cold. But that's it. It, It's, will I give up my rights... For the sake of the other person. Even more if they need it. Or a tax on your liberty. If someone asks you to go, forces you to go one mile. And and Roman soldiers apparently could legally force people to carry their packs for a, a mile. So that the soldiers had a rest. Jesus says, go with him two miles. Above and beyond. Or demands on our generosity there. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Don't give to people based on what you can get out of it. Be a cheerful, willing, generous giver. There are four examples of not resisting an evil person. And remember, Jesus is talking about individuals. He's not talking about a social system or social structure. He's talking about personal abuse and personal self-sacrifice. He's not talking about our laws. He's not talking about not standing up for the rights of other people. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Uh, And the four examples highlight uh, an ethic of our kingdom, of, of this kingdom of God, which is that all our relationships are to be marked by love. To use every opportunity we have to serve others with a radical love. Even if they don't deserve it. That's radical, isn't it? To repay evil with good. To our enemies, love. To those who hurt us, love. To those who would take advantage of us, love. To those who would deprive us of our rights, love. As we have been loved by God. So that in part others may see that love of Jesus and be attracted to the kingdom. That's what we want, isn't it? 
It's a heart matter. God's law of love, we're told in the Old Testament, is written on our hearts. To live it out as we have loved, as we have been loved. Breaking that cycle of hate and revenge. And, and you know, when that driver cuts in front of you and you really want to give it to him, don't tailgate him waiting for an opportunity to cut in front of him. Give him space. Love him. Pray that he will make it home alive. Pray that his family won't feel the effects of his anger. How do we love those who wrong us? Jesus calls us, doesn't he, to give up that self-centred, self-seeking spirit of ours, which insists on my right, which demands retaliation if you break them, it's so countercultural, isn't it? Which is what the Sermon on the Mount is. Society says, doesn't it, I have my rights and I must use them, no matter what. And if you don't let me, I'm going to sue you. And where does it end? It ends, doesn't it, in the gun massacres in America. It ends in 83,000 abortions in Australia in 2017. It ends in civil war in the Ukraine. And on it goes. Because I have to stand up for my rights. I have the right to do whatever I want, regardless of anybody else. Jesus says to his followers, thanks Vernon, do not stand on your rights. Don't make your rights the basis of your relationships. Love is the basis. For all our relationships, foregoing my rights if that's what's needed. It's like when you go into marriage. You lay down your rights to serve the other person. That's to be in all our relationships. Don Carson said, disciples have no rights. No right to retaliate. No right to wreak vengeance. No right to possessions. No right to time or money. It's radical, isn't it? But we have the right to give of ourselves. The right to think of the other person first. As Jesus did, didn't he? He put aside all his rights as God the Son to come down to earth, to walk the extra mile, to turn the other cheek, to give up his clothing at the foot of the cross to the soldiers to pray for those who killed him. And he could do it, couldn't he? Trusting that his father would bring about perfect justice one day. See, we we know justice matters, but we leave it to God. We rest on that same promise. And so we don't have to retaliate because God will bring justice one day. And we don't give in to despair at the injustice we see in the world around us because one day God will bring justice. One day God will put everything right. Yes, we keep striving for justice, 
but knowing that one day, one day it will come. And so we are called on, aren't we, to have the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. That sacrificial self-giving for the sake of others that Jesus showed in his life and in his death on the cross. So that people might see something different in us. That they might see what do Christians have that we don't have. I don't like the way we live. Show me something better. Show me something beautiful. Show me what the way of love looks like. Of course, we can't do it by ourselves. To live as Jesus commands is not natural, is it? But it's supernatural. It needs a work of God in our lives, doesn't it? As, as Martin Luther King had, as so many do. Uh, we need that power of God's Spirit. Remember the first of the fruits of the Spirit? Love. Love, joy, peace. But love is the primary one, isn't it? To treat others as God has treated us. And I think we need to keep asking God to do that work in us every day because it's really easy to slip back into retaliation mode. So will you pray for that work of God? Pray for it in me, please. Pray for it in one another. Pray for it in yourself. Because Jesus commands us to live like this. And to love Jesus is to obey his commands, isn't it? He is our standard at the end of chapter 5. Be like God, be perfect. Now that's radical. Only God can enable us to be anything like that. The Spirit is our power and Jesus is our example. And so we push on in the fight, don't we? We battle against our need for retaliation, our desire for revenge, our desire to hurt. And as we do, we keep seeing our need for God's grace. We prayed our confession reminds us that we fail. We keep acknowledging, yes, Lord, I keep needing your forgiveness. And it's there for us. As we repent, as we keep praying for the work of God's spirit in us, that we might live in love. Let's pray that we will. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. That really does cut to our hearts. That reminds us of where we fall short of your standards, fall short of your glory. Father, we thank you for your love for us in Jesus. And we thank you for these words that challenge us and remind us that we need your forgiveness and we need the work of your spirit in us to change our hearts. Father, please keep giving us that mind and heart of Christ that we might love others as we have been loved, that we might show them the beauty of the kingdom, that we won't be people who stand on our rights and retaliate and seek revenge, but that we would give up our rights for those who need our love, that they might see Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.